I've got a decent bit of ground to cover, so I'm going to need you guys to listen a little faster than you usually do. And so we're going to, I'm going to, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to keep a, a brisk pace because we got some ground to cover, but if you'll concentrate with me and work hard with me, I'll, I'll work hard with you, all right? And so can you, can you, can you roll with me? You can't, you can't tune out this week or you're going to, you're going to get, it's going to blow by you. But if you hang with me, I, I think we can all come away with something this morning. But we're going to be back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, so feel free to turn there if you have your Bibles. Um, last week we got all the way to verse 12 of chapter 2, and, and, and the first 12 verses of chapter 2 were what we were calling the model of discipleship. They, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they, they lay out for us in those first 12 verses the manner of men that they were as they ministered and as they discipled the Thessalonians. And we finished verse 12 last week, and so this morning we're going to be studying verse 13 of chapter 2. And verse 13 of chapter 2 is extremely, is an extremely important verse in the Bible, and it's extremely meaty. And so that, that's, that's why we're going to take this whole message to, to cover it. But as we begin studying verse 13, what we find here is that Paul, Silas, and Timothy are switching gears. They, they, they'd been laying out this model of discipleship for us in those first 12 verses of chapter 2, but when they begin verse 13, instead of the focus being on Paul, Silas, and Timothy delivering the word of God to the Thessalonians and their manner of ministry as they modeled discipleship, their focus turns to the way that the Thessalonians received the word that they were giving. And so we, we, what we discover is, is that the Thessalonians received the word the right way. That's the, that's, our, that's the first thing I'd like for us to look at this morning, receiving the word the right way. Take a look at verse 13 with me. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. They received it not as the word of men, but they received it as the word of God. They received it the right way. And this is a verse that we've touched on some already as we've been studying this book. But today we're going to dive in quite a bit deeper. Now, what we've seen from chapter 1 and verse 5 is that the Thessalonians received the word in much assurance, verse 5 says. And, and, and as we've been covering, they, the Thessalonians receiving the word in much assurance was linked to the manner of men that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were in front of them. And like chapter 2 and verse 13 says that we just read a second ago, the Thessalonians actually received that word with so much assurance that they received it as it was in truth the word of God and not the word of men. They received it the right way. And, and again, that's connected to the manner of men that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were in front of them. There, there's just no way around it. God is going to use clean vessels that are surrendered to his purposes, that are involved in ministering and discipling and doing what they do with the right motives. 
That's just the way that God designed it. God isn't going to use unclean vessels. When you're an unclean vessel, that sin hurts the intimacy of the relationship that God wants to have with us. Just like in the physical world, more physical intimacy equals more fruit. I'm very aware of that as number four is on the way. But, but the fruit, that fruit is physical children, right? And it's the same in the spiritual world. More spiritual intimacy equals more spiritual fruit. And that fruit is spiritual children. And there are other ways that that fruit manifests itself as well, like the, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace, and go down the list. So the way that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were used so mightily of the Lord is most certainly connected to the manner of men that they were, like we've been studying the past four weeks. But what I want you to notice is, is that though Paul, Silas, and Timothy were mightily used clean vessels through which the Holy Ghost was able to unleash his power, the Thessalonians still had a choice. Not everyone in Thessalonica accepted the message of the gospel and got saved. Remember, they were run out of town by the ones that didn't want to hear it, right? So, so not everyone accepted the message of the truth, but what was so important and what was the distinguishing factor between those that received it and those that didn't is that those that believed the message received it as the word of God and not as the word of men. They didn't receive it as the word of men, and that's letter A on your outline. They, it, it was not the word of men the way that they received it. Uh, again, in First. Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. Look at it again with me. It was, and we've got it in bold. It was, they received it not as the word of men. You see, here's what everybody who has ever lived understands about the word of men that I, that I don't even need to explain to you. They always have the potential to be wrong. That's a key distinguishing factor. They always have the potential to be flawed, and over time, they will be at some point. What's the phrase, you guys, you, we, that we say? To, to err is human. That's what we say. There's, there's only so far you can go with man's words. And, and looking still at, at verse 13, Paul, Silas, and Timothy say to the Thessalonians that they were so thankful that they just thanked God without ceasing because the Thessalonians received that thing the right way. But, but, but this wasn't the first thing that they were so thankful for. The, the, the first thing, because it says, if you'll notice, it says, for this cause also thank we God. There was something else earlier that they were super and extremely thankful for in, first Thess- in, in earlier in the passage. They just couldn't stop thanking God for the way that they received the message. And the, the other thing they couldn't stop thanking God for is in chapter 1 and verse 3. And we looked at this a few weeks ago. Paul, Silas, and Timothy also gave thanks earlier. And that's why he's got the also in there. But he gave thanks to God for the Thessalonians' lives being characterized by a work of faith, a labor of love, and a patience of hope. Those are the works that were manifested in the lives of the Thessalonians as a result of them receiving the word, not as the word of men, but as the word of God. And this was so huge, because I don't know about you guys, 
But I'm not going to have a work of faith where I'm sharing the gospel with others. And I'm not going to have a labor of love where I'm bending over backwards to show Christ's love for others. And I'm not going to have patience of hope where I endure persecution and I hazard my life for the cause of Christ because of the hope I have in my eternity with Christ if I'm basing it on the potentially flawed words of man. Why would you go through all of that if you're basing it on man's words? But on the other hand, if we receive those words as the word of God, well, that changes everything. And that's how the Thessalonians received it. They received it, letter B, as the word of God. They received it as the word of God. Again, verse 13 of chapter 2 tells us they received it not as the word of men, but as in truth, the word of God. And of course, a key difference between man's words and God's word is that man's word will eventually be wrong and God's word will never be wrong. (laughs) Man's word is flawed. God's word is perfect. If you're questioning whether or not the word you're receiving is really from God, you're going to find yourself in a bad place. If you don't receive the word in faith as the word of God, then at worst you won't believe and at best you doubt. And either way, you're lacking varying degrees of faith. God teaches us in Hebrews eleven six that Without faith, it is, how hard is it to please him? It is impossible to please him. Receiving the message in faith as the word of God and not the word of men is so unbelievably important because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And that makes a lot of biblical sense because faith is a prerequisite for salvation. But you can still be saved and lack faith in other areas. You can be saved and lack faith that God will fulfill his promises and he'll do what he said he would do. Has anybody here ever doubted Romans 8, 28 in their life? That that all things will work together for good to those that love God and that are called according to his purpose. You ever doubt that God's going to work your circumstances out for good and you just want him to get you out of the circumstance instead? You see, there's power in receiving it as the word of God, not wavering, not doubting it, not questioning what God said or if God said it. If Satan can get you to question what God said or or if God said it, he's got you right where he wants you. You realize questioning the word of God is what got us into this whole mess that we're in right now, Genesis 3.1 gives us the first recorded words of Satan in the Bible that God purposely recorded for us in the way that he recorded it for us in Genesis 3.1. He says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, here it is, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? 
and what part of Satan's game plan was from the very beginning and what it is to this very day is to get us to question whether or not the word that we're hearing is actually the word of God. What did God really say? Because if we question it, then he can get us to receive it, not as the word of God, but as the word of man. And there's a drastic difference between the results of receiving it as the word of God versus receiving it as the word of men. And that brings us to number two on your study sheet, the results of receiving the word the right way. The results of receiving the word the right way. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, have you noticed the end of the verse? They thanked God without ceasing because they received it as the word of men, as they didn't receive it as the word of men, but as in truth, the word of God. And, and here it is, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. It, it, it effectually works. It mightily works. The, the mighty works show forth. You know what it is? It, it's, a, it's a work that brings forth fruit. It's a, it's a factual work. And, and where does that effectual work that brings forth fruit come from? Well, this verse says it comes from believing. It's from those that believe, those that have faith. Those that believe and have faith in what? What's the verse say? It's those that believe and have faith that the word they're receiving is from God and it's not from men. So for those that believe that message they're hearing is the word of God, those that are receiving it as the word of God and not as the word of men, there's fruitfulness in their life as a result of receiving it that way. It does a fruitful and it does an effectual work in our lives when we receive it that way. It leads to fruit bearing. So, so I think we need to ask ourselves this morning, is that the way that you receive the word of God in, in your life? Do we receive it as it is in truth? The word of God and not the word of men. Do you truly believe that? Because if we do, and if we receive it that way, there will be an effectual and a fruitful work in our lives. There will be change. There will be results. Now, in this particular instance here, in verse 13 that we're, that we're studying, the word of God that Paul, Silas, and Timothy are specifically referring to here is the word that actually came out of their mouths to the Thessalonians. But but keep in mind that you know it's believed that this first that book of First Thessalonians was the first book written in the New Testament. So they didn't have the, the full New Testament at that point. They didn't have anything, right? God was just putting the New Testament into motion. But we have that though, don't we? So, so we aren't receiving God's word directly from the mouth of an apostle. We might receive the word of God from someone's mouth. But, but the source is the completed canon of Scripture, which is the Bible. We don't have an apostle's verbal word like the Thessalonians did. We have the written word. 
And of course, the same principles apply. There will be an effectual and fruitful work in our lives when we receive the written word of God as it is in truth, the word of God and not the word of men. But listen very carefully. We are living in a day and age where there is very few people on this planet that actually are doing that. Very few people on this planet, y'all, read the Word of God and receive it as it is in truth. God breathed the Word of God and not the Word of men because there are some basic requirements that need to be met in order to be able to do that. Number three on your outline is the, the requirements for receiving the word the right way. There are some requirements, and, and, and as we're looking into what these requirements are, I'm gonna I'm gonna give away where where I'm heading. This is a church that believes that there is one perfect, preserved, inerrant, inspired. Bible, and that Bible happens to be the King James Version of the Bible. Now, interestingly enough, most Christians believe we are absolutely nuts for believing that. They really, they do, and, that, and that's okay, because I think it's nuts that they think it's nuts. And so where does that leave us? We're all, that's right, that's right. You know, and, and the truth is, is they may talk about there's a lot of crazy people that believe that. And they, you know, kind of stereotyping it a little bit. And they're probably right. They're, pro they're probably right. But to be fair, crazy people are everywhere. So we're not the only camp that has crazy people. And also, for what it's worth, that is not a valid argument. Maligning the character of a group by making what's called ad hominem attacks by attacking their character, it doesn't actually address the ideas and the arguments that they're presenting and bringing to the table. Because even if they are crazy, it doesn't mean they're wrong. <laughs> right? You, th you, think, <laughs> you think Hitler was wrong about everything? You think Jeffrey Dahmer was wrong about everything he believed? If they believed the sky was blue, are we all wrong for believing the sky was blue because that's what Hitler and Dahmer believed, right? That's not a logical approach. It's not a logical argument. You have to address the point up for debate, not the character of the individual that believes it. So it doesn't matter how you stereotype a group. What matters is quite simply, is what they believe true? That's, what, that's the only thing that matters, but, but interestingly enough, we can agree on 95% of all the other doctrines in the Bible, and you can rest assured that this, is gonna, this one's going to be the hang-up. This is the one, and, and, and what I'm about to get into here, y'all, isn't meant to be some sort of exhaustive dissertation of the King James Bible. That's not what this is intended to be, because we could literally go months on and on and on to do that. But I do want to address it because I do believe it's a clear teaching that we're receiving from the verse we happen to be in in 1 Thessalonians. But, but I think as I lay out some of what are very simple truths this morning, I think that you'll find that what is considered to be a crazy position by many 
is actually very reasonable, rational, logical, and biblical. Okay, so there are some requirements that logically have to be met in order to receive the word of God as it is in truth, the word of God and not the word of men. And those, those, those requirements, they're connected to the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, that, that, that leads us to a key principle that we need to understand. The key principle is that everything that's true of the incarnate word is true of the written word. Everything that's true of the incarnate word is true of the written word. And I'll let that sink in for just a second. But, but, but I'll, I'll, show you, I'll show you what I mean. In, in John 1, 1, we've got this monumental statement that many of you guys are familiar with. It, it, say, it says that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And one of the things that this verse is teaching us that I want to make sure you understand is that Jesus Christ is the word. He could have described himself in a million other different ways, but he wants us to be sure he, that we know that he's the word. A, a few verses down in the same chapter in verse 14, John says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Father prepared a body for the Word one day, and that Word became flesh, and it dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. First John chapter 5 and verse 7 says, now, now hang with me, guys. First John 5, 7 says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, who else? The word and the holy ghost and these three are one again the word is none other than jesus christ the second member of the godhead and and i don't think that i need to tell you that the book that we hold in our hands this morning is the word of god as well it's the written word it's the same word that we're commanded to preach in second timothy 4 2 in 2 Timothy 4, 2 says, preach the word. <laughs> We're to preach the word. Jesus was the incarnate word or the word made flesh. The Bible is the written word. And I remind you of that to point out and to be sure you understand again that everything that's true of the incarnate word is true of the written word. Are you tracking with that? They're, they're one in the same. One was flesh and one was in a book. You say there's no way that that book can be on the same level as the person. And you know what? You're, at, you're actually right. The book isn't on the same level. It's actually elevated even higher. <laughs> David says in Psalm 138.2, he says, I will worship toward thy... Do we have Psalm 138 too? There it is. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. And what's that next line? For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Wow. 
God elevated his word above his name because his word is how we know him. It's how we have access. It's how we have access to him. It's how we know who he is. So again, we have to understand Jesus Christ is the word. So everything that's true of him, the incarnate word, is true of the written word. Now, there's a couple characteristics of Jesus, the incarnate word, that are important for us to see in order to receive that written word as the word of God and not the word of men. Letter A, like Jesus, it has to be perfect. Like Jesus, it has to be perfect. How can we receive it as God's word if it's not perfect have you ever thought about that like jesus it has to be perfect first john 3 5 teaches us that in him is no sin in jesus there was no sin in him he was sinless he was perfect he was without error and so we see that the bible makes that claim about jesus and the bible also makes that same claim about itself do you realize that Jesus says in John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. God is teaching us his word is perfect. His word is truth. Proverbs 30 and verse 5 teaches us, Hey, it's not just his ideas and it's not just his concepts that, that, are, that are without error. It's actually every word Proverbs 35, every word of God is pure. Every single one of them. So I, I think we have to ask ourselves, what happens when two different versions of the Bible say two different things? And with that question posed, I want to bring us to a very basic concept that I believe needs to be stated and it's simply this, two things that are different are not the same. Aren't you glad you came for that? Yeah. And I don't even mean to be sarcastic when I say that. I genuinely feel like we need to process that for just a second. That needs to be understood and considered as we look at a couple of these places in the Bible where there's some key differences between the King James Bible, which was the only Bible used between 1611 and the late 1800s and some of the modern versions. Now, we talked earlier about the fact that, that a key distinction between receiving the word of God as the word of God and not as the word of men is that we know if it came from God, it will be perfect and it will be without error. We, we know if it came from man, it will inevitably contain error. That's a key distinction. So it has to be perfect. So, so when you compare two different versions of the Bible side by side and they say two different things, then if God is perfect and what is true of the incarnate word is true of the written word, then we know that one of them can't be God's word. Because if it's not perfect, then it has to be man's word there and not God's. It has to be perfect. It has to be true. So with that in mind, I want us to just compare a couple verses side by side in a, in a couple different versions, and I want us to start with Daniel chapter 3 and verse 25. Daniel chapter 3 and verse 25, and, and, and here is what the King James Version of the Bible says in this place. 
He answered, in, 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 for reference, this is the story of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And, and here's, here's what's said in Daniel 3.25. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Okay? That, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's crazy, but what, what, do the other, what do the other versions say? Well, the, the New American Standard, the ESV, and the NIV all say the exact same phrase. It, they don't, the fourth isn't like the Son of God. He, he's like a son of the gods. Wow. I'll be, I'll be doggone. Let, <laughs> let, me, <laughs> the, let, me ask you, let me ask you something. Can both of those be right? They can't, can they? No, no, because one is a reference to a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, the Son of God, and the other is a reference to some sort of demonic being, a son of the gods. So that means at least one of them is wrong. <laughs> so look at, look at me with, look at uh, Revelation 22:16 with me, if you would. Revelation 22. 16, in the King James Version, it says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Okay, so, so who is clearly defined as the morning star here? That's right, it's, it's, it's Jesus. Now let's look at the NIV. Okay, well, wouldn't you, don't, how, do you, how do you like that? The, it's also the morning star. Okay, so we're on the same page here. Jesus is the morning star in both. But that brings us to another passage that starts to jumble things up a little bit. Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12. And let's start with reading the NIV first. And this verse is referring to Lucifer. And look at what it says. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. Uh, now wait, I thought Jesus was the morning star. According to the verse we just saw in Revelation twenty-two sixteen. both the NIV and the KJV agreed in that spot that Jesus was the morning star. Now according to the NIV, Lucifer is the morning star in Isaiah. Which is it? The King James Version says, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Oh, okay, now that's different. <laughs> Lucifer isn't, isn't called the morning star here. He's called the son of the morning. And the reason he's not called the morning star is because that's a name for Jesus. Now, now can both of these be true? Can the morning star be both Jesus and Satan. Can that, is, it, is it possible for those two things to be true? It, it's not only inaccurate, it's actually the complete opposite. There's no bigger difference in the world between two people than there are between Jesus and Satan. So can they both be God's perfect word? Two things that are different are not the same. They can't both be perfect. 
the NIV doesn't just disagree with the KJV, it disagrees with itself. Because the NIV had already agreed that Jesus was the morning star. And, and listen, we could go on and on and on with this stuff. We literally could. We, but, but, it, but my goal is not to show you all of these places. It's just to give you a taste of it. To make those spidey senses go off and to realize something ain't right. I may not know everything, but something ain't right with that. It, just like the incarnate word, the written word is perfect and inerrant. I'll remind you of what Peter says about the scriptures in Second Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16, it says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Listen, he's talking about the, the Mount of Transfiguration here. Verse 17, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. Listen, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Listen, are you tracking with that so far in this verse? They heard the audible voice of God in that mountain that day. And that's what makes the next verse so stinking crazy. Verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You understand that verse 19 here is telling us that we have a more sure word in the scriptures than if we were to hear the audible voice of God. Now, is that incredible or what? What a gift this book that God left for us is. But now let me ask you this. When you compare the different versions of the Bible that are saying different things and that are saying polar opposite things, can both of them be a more sure word of God than the audible voice of God? I don't know about you, but that doesn't make me feel very sure. I'm not feeling too sure right now. But here's what I am sure of. These versions can't all be perfect and inerrant. They can't all be pure. Psalm 12:6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. They can't all be pure because they don't say the same thing. Second Timothy 3 and verse 16, it, it says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. If they say two different things, could they both be inspired by God? According to this verse, they can't both be inspired and they can't both be Scripture, because Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and if it's inspired by God, then it's going to be perfect. Now, I'm not saying that other versions that have error, I'm not saying that they don't contain some of the Word of God, 
And I'm not saying that someone can't get saved or grow while reading it. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm just saying that a logical requirement for us to actually be able to receive the word as it is in truth, the word of God, and not the word of men, is it has to be perfect. And, and not all of the versions can be perfect if they're saying different things. And you say, well, that's, listen, there's not that much error, so that's not that big of a deal. Well, whether or not there's a little or a lot is debatable, but that's also like saying the house that we bought in the, the backyard only has a few landmines back there. <laughs> it's just a couple. It's not a, it's not a big deal. There's only a few back there. But, but listen, y'all, this is how Satan operates. Doubting, adding, subtracting, and changing the word of God. It's how he's always operated. Because if he has you doubting, he'll either keep you from salvation or render you useless for the kingdom after salvation. It's so important that we understand how he works. Look at Genesis 3 again with me where, where we see... Satan trying to get Eve to doubt God's word because there's more. I held a little of this back from you when I showed it to you earlier. And I want to show it to you now. Genesis chapter 3 in verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So again, Satan's getting her to doubt that the word she heard came from God. But have you ever seen what's next? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Okay. So Eve is telling Satan, Here's what God told us about these trees in the garden. That seems harmless enough. But, but we actually have the conversation recorded for us that she's alluding to in Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17, and then it records for us something that I find very interesting. Would you look at that, would you look at that with me with the, and compare it side by side with Eve's interpretation of the event? You see, we have recorded for us that conversation that Eve's alluding to in Genesis 2 in verse 16. Do we have a, there it is, Genesis 2 in verse 16. Okay, here's what the Lord said. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Okay, and in Genesis 3, 2, Eve says, and, and the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Okay, interesting. Eve just left out the word freely. Okay, she, it, maybe it's nothing. Or is it? You know why it becomes a big deal? Because in Genesis 2, in verse 16, when the Lord said that they could freely eat of any tree, the next verse goes on to say that you can freely eat of any tree other than the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which, of course, they ultimately ate from. But do you know what tree was included in the trees that they could eat from? The tree of life. You see, God was painting a picture of salvation for us back in Genesis chapter 2 because anyone that eats of the tree of life would have eternal life. And that tree was at Adam and Eve's disposal. Doggone it, why didn't they just stink and eat it? 
it was at their disposal for them to, here's the word, freely eat and have eternal life. It was a picture because what Romans 5.18 teaches us about the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ is that in, in Romans 5.18 is, therefore, as by the offense of one, that's Adam's offense, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, that's Jesus, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. You see, he keeps throwing in that free thing everywhere, doesn't he? We like free. He, you see, God was, he was painting a picture of salvation for us back in Genesis 2 when he told them they could freely eat of the trees that included the tree that could, eat, that could give them eternal life. And you know what the problem is? If you don't freely receive eternal life from Jesus Christ as a gift, then how are you attempting to receive it? If it isn't free, then you have to work for it, don't you? And if it, you add works to receiving salvation for eternal life, then it isn't salvation at all. You see, the word was under attack by Satan and Eve all the way back in Genesis. Eve took away from the word. And you wouldn't believe what happens next in the next verse of chapter 3. In the next verse of chapter 3 of Genesis and start with me in verse 2. The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now wait just a second. Did God say to not touch it? Again, we have the verse in the previous chapter to compare it to. Let's put them side by side. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, side by side with Genesis 3, 3. Genesis 2, 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. That's the verse we just saw. But what's God say next? But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now where does Eve get this part in chapter 3 and verse 3, when she's telling them what God said, where is she getting that neither shall ye touch it? That's not what he said in chapter 2 and verse 16, is it? God doesn't say anything about touching it. And what Eve does is she adds to the word of God, doesn't she? You know what we have in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, as early as that? Verse 1, questioning the Verse 1, questioning God's word. Verse 2, subtracting from God's word. Verse 3, adding to God's word. We can't get out of the third chapter of Genesis without an all-out onslaught attack on the word of God. Now, do you think that he has stopped using that strategy now today? But not only does this word need to be perfect. If what's true of the incarnate word of God is true of the written word of God, there's another logical requirement for receiving it as it is in truth, the word of God. And that's letter B, like Jesus, it has to be eternal. 
like Jesus, it has to be eternal. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20. It, it, it says that, the, that we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true and we are in Him that is true. Here it is. Even in His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Jesus is God, and as God, He's eternal. And so since everything that's true of the incarnate Word of God is true of the written Word of God, then the written Word of God must be eternal. It must be preserved. And what I find very interesting is, is that those that commonly oppose the King James position don't actually believe that the Bible that they hold in their hands is inerrant, and they don't believe it's eternal, and they don't believe it's preserved. And we've already seen biblical claims of perfection and inerrancy, but, but, it, but, but here's what it says about its eternality. It, Matthew 24, 35, it, it says, Jesus says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. You can bank on that. Heaven and earth really will pass away one day. <laughs> but God's words are forever. <laughs> They're eternal, just like He is. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18 says, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. A, a jot and a tittle, were, uh, there were essentially the smallest marks you could make in Hebrew, Jesus said, that's how serious I am about my word. Not one jot and not one tittle will be forgotten or missed until it's all fulfilled. And this speaks to the word's eternality and also to its perfection that we just saw. First Peter 1.25 says it this way, but the word of the Lord endureth, how long does it endure? Forever. That's so clear, I can't even paraphrase it for you. It, we, just read about the, we just read about the pure words from Psalm 12, 6, but, but I want to read it again with the verse that follows in verse 7. Psalm chapter 12, <clears throat> in verse 6, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times, and here it is. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, those words, thou shalt preserve them, from this generation forever. God's going to preserve his words, not just his concepts even, not, but his individual words all the way down to the jots and all the way down to the tittles forever. That seems pretty clear. But that is not what the vast majority of Christianity believes about their Bible. You know what they believe? They believe that the word is perfect and inerrant, but here comes the kicker. In the original manuscripts. I'll, I'll, even, I'll even show you what I mean because a lot of them say it in their doctrinal statements. And I, I grabbed a couple doctrinal statements from some fundamental churches in the country so that I could show you. I didn't deem it necessary to pull their name into it because the reality is it's almost all of them i mean i i could go on for days but it, but but here's one that should be on the next slide 
Here's, a, here's just a, a classic doctrinal statement that you'll see all over the internet that I, I just want you to see it with your own two eyes. It starts off good. <laughs> we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, fully inspired and without error. Well, that's sounding good. In the original manuscripts. Ah, okay. How about another one? Will you bring up the next slide? We believe that the Bible is God's written revelation to man and only the 66 books of the Bible given to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit constitute the plenary inspired equally in all parts word of God. The Bible is God-breathed and absolutely inerrant. This is sounding really good. In the original manuscripts. Okay. Everything sounds good until you get to that little original manuscript part. Because do you know what the problem is? We don't have the original manuscripts, have never had the original manuscripts, and never will have the original manuscripts that they speak of. So to say that we have the perfect, inerrant, inspired word of God in the original manuscripts is actually to say we don't have it, we've never had it, and we'll never have it. To say that is to say that you do not believe in the doctrine of preservation. In other words, you don't believe God preserved his word for eternity like he promised that he would. Now, everyone wants to hang on the fact, they want to hang on the fact that it's perfect and that it's inerrant, but once you get under the surface, you realize that's not actually what they believe, that we, they don't actually believe that. They don't believe that we have a perfect copy, and that begs a very important question. What good is inspiration without preservation? What good is it to even say, it's inspired, we believe it's perfect and inerrant, but then continue on to say, but we don't have it, and no one's ever had it. What good is it if we don't have it? What are we talking about? I thought Psalm 12 said he'd preserve it forever, and I believed it when I read it. Well, Justin, you have to understand that the, that the Bible was originally in Hebrew and Greek, and so in order for one version in English to be perfect, it would literally take a miracle to keep that over time and over a translation. A miracle, you say? I know a God that can do those. So are, are you to tell me that the same God that we all believe spoke the earth into existence and that we all believe parted the Red Sea and that we all believe rose from the dead, you're telling me that same God couldn't figure out a way to keep his perfect word preserved over the course of time and languages? The perfect word, mind you, that God promised to preserve forever. Am I to believe that that's where God's power ran out? Am I, am I crazy if I believe that he did exactly what he promised he was going to do? Guys, he gave us his word perfectly and inerrant. And he did what he said, and he preserved it in its perfect and inerrant form. He did it in the King James Bible. If that makes me crazy then I will take my straight jacket in size large. 
And I genuinely ask you, why is it so far-fetched for a group of people that believe all sort of other mind-boggling things? We can believe all those things that he spoke the earth into existence, but we don't believe he can perfectly preserve the word in a book over time and languages. And, and, and for our purposes this morning, I, I, don't have, you know, I don't have time to get into why we believe that the King James is the version where God preserved his inerrant word. That would take us down a whole other path. But I, the point I want to be sure that you got was the fact that it has to be somewhere. We're saying we think we know where it is. It has to be somewhere, though. There has to be a perfect one somewhere based on the characteristics of the incarnate Word of God and based upon what the Word of God says about itself. And again, we believe that's in the King James Bible. And listen, is it any surprise to you that Satan is operating this way? After all you've seen this morning from the way he operate, has always operated, if you don't believe that Satan has his hand in the Bible version game, then I don't know what else to, to tell you. But here's what I want to make sure that you see. One of the reasons that Satan is always attempting to get the, the, the wor- everybody to doubt God's word, and, and a reason he's had his hand in adding to it and taking away from it, all through the centuries, is because once he has you there, he has you paralyzed. If it has errors, I sure do hope it's not in the part that's talking about our salvation. Yikes! I hope that's not where some of those mistakes are in the Bible. This whole thing opens up a can of worms, and most of Christianity is in denial. If you don't believe that you know for sure that you can have the word of God in your hands as opposed to the word of men. It'll leave you paralyzed. But Satan also knows what it will do if you do believe. Satan understands that the verse we're studying this morning, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, listen, he, he understands that, that what it says is true and that if we're able to approach the word and believe it for what it is in truth, believe it as the actual word of God and not the word of men, then he knows that it will have an effectual work in our lives. He knows it will produce a fruitful work in our lives. Can you honestly say that you approach the Bible that way? Do you believe that? Do you read it from the standpoint of opening it in awe like These are the very words and words of God in my hands. How incredible is that? It's it's impossible in my mind to receive the Bible as the word of God if you don't truly believe there's anywhere on this planet that it's perfect and preserved. You just can't. But if you believe that, And if we receive the word as the word of God in our lives and not the word of men, if we approach it that way, it will have an effectual and a fruitful work in our lives. Jesus, we we thank you for preserving your word for us. We love it. We love to study it. We love to read it. In it contains the words and the truth of eternal life, about the way that we can restore the relationship with you that was lost in the fall. 
And God, we want to be able to approach it as it is in truth, the word of God and not, not the word of men. And we understand that we're, we're incapable of doing that if we believe that it has errors, God, because you don't have errors. We're incapable of doing that if we don't believe that, that you've preserved it because you're eternal and you've promised that you were going to preserve it. God, may we approach the word as it is in truth this week as we, as we turn the corner and go to back to work tomorrow and do all the things that we do as we're doing that, God. May we genuinely approach our time in your word is approaching it and opening it as the word of God because we know when we do, you teach us. That will be an effectual and a fruitful work in our lives when we approach it that way. We love you, Lord. Amen. Thank you.